Welcome to today's podcast, Transforming Compliance Training from Boring to Great. Chances are your organization's compliance program is boring your employees, but a new book entitled Creating Great Compliance Training in a Digital World by Kirsten Liston argues that it doesn't have to be that way. Effective compliance training today is not just about informing employees, but about persuading them, and as such requires an approach that grabs and engages their attention. Borrowing communication lessons from content marketing, journalism, and advertising, Liston covers best practices for delivering compliance training that actually changes employee behavior. And with increased scrutiny from regulators, boards, and customers, it's no longer enough to just show that a training exists. You need to show that the training really works. In this podcast, I'll interview Kirsten Liston, founder and principal at Rethink Compliance. Kirsten has been creating comprehensive compliance and ethics solutions for complex global companies since 2000. She is passionate about creating programs and products that genuinely reach employees and change cultures. She and her team create compelling content to support stronger, more effective compliance programs. She is a certified compliance and ethics professional and a highly engaging speaker. Her articles have been published in Compliance and Ethics, Compliance and Ethics Professional, Compliance Week, and Directors and Boards. Welcome, Kirsten, to today's podcast. Yeah, Greg, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this uh, discussion today because I I know what you're talking about first firsthand. Uh, I was in the financial services industry for many years. I won't say with whom, but we had to go through these horrendous compliance trainings uh, through our learning management system, basically just sit through them and click. Um, yeah. And it was pretty boring. Yeah. So I'm excited, to, I'm excited to hear about uh, how you might turn that around for some of the, the people, some of our listeners today. But let's back up. A, let's back up a little bit and give us some broad strokes around how you've seen sort of changes in compliance training over the last 20 years, just in broad strokes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I joined the compliance industry in September of 2000. I joined this little startup company in Boston that had the bright idea. They were one of maybe two or three companies right at that time. Uh, they had the bright idea to take compliance training and put it on the Internet, right, which was kind of this new business tool that was available to us. Um, and if I, you know, at a – if. if if I want to kind of talk about compliance training at a high level, I would say that the first six to ten years was really just about companies getting programs in place. You know, compliance as an industry was being invented from scratch. Uh, you know, in 2000, you didn't have compliance professionals. You didn't have, you know, people who had been a chief compliance officer or a compliance training manager or any of that. That would come um, as people stood up these programs and gained experience. You know, what you had in 2000 was the general counsel walking into the office of some poor transactions attorney, putting some papers down on that person's desk and saying, congratulations, you're writing our first code of conduct. And the person would say, what's the code of conduct? Um, so, you know, the first six to ten years were really just about getting these things in place, which was a massive effort. Uh, companies had to come up with the budgets. They had to, you know, really just figure out all the, through trial and error, a lot of cases, all of the ins and outs of how do you reach a global audience with the same message. That The technology had arrived, but the practices and the, and the processes and kind of the best way to do things hadn't yet arrived. Um, but I would say around about, you know, between 2006 and 2010, you started to see a shift in the market, which is to say, Companies had 
gotten these things stood up, they had gone through the trial and error, they were used to having these programs in place, and now they were starting to think about, like, okay, what's next? You know, we did a code of conduct course, now let's make one that's better. Um, and that really accelerated as digital technology changed. You know, the iPhone came out in 2007. By 2010, 2011, we were used to having really cool devices in our pockets, seeing really cool stuff online. You know, the, the Internet had kind of grown and flourished and was full of viral content and endless cat videos and Facebook and all sorts of things that really sucked us in. Um, and it was around then that clients started asking, why can't my com compliance training be this interesting? Why is my compliance training still as clunky as it was in 2006? Um, and, you know, you talked about the courses you took at a financial services company. I think that as, as compliance professionals, we all made the mistake of thinking, well, we have to do this. So, so it can't be interesting, right? This is a requirement. People have right. to do it. Um, and, and we didn't really stop to think about what could be interesting about this, what could be visually attractive, how could we use kind of some tried-and-true communications techniques to, to reach people and hook people and get them interested. Um, the field started asking about that in 2013, 2014, and it is accelerating up through today. So that's my 10,000-foot look back on compliance training. I think I think that's great to set the stage for the discussion today. Now, you started your career as a journalist, and yeah. I, I think a lot of that figures in your, into your approach here. What would you say in that question? How does that figure into your, your approach to compliance training? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, when I was a big reader when I was a kid. When I was in high school, I was a big part of the drama program. Um, and then I spent, as you say, five years in Minneapolis really working my way up in journalism. Of course, none of us at the time knew that that field was about to be kind of permanently changed with the Internet, right? Um, and so I had spent five years really thinking about how do you write something that grabs people's attention? How do you take all these ideas or, or these things that happened in life or your thoughts on a movie and really fit them into 500 words or 700 words that people are going to read and they're going to write letters about and they're going to take action on, um, you know, depending on what it was that you were writing about. Um, and it was cool because when I landed my job in compliance, I realized very quickly that a lot of my previous experiences were being brought to bear on this stuff. In the very early days, I was responsible for hiring the actors that we filmed to put in these things. I wrote dialogue, and I sat with the actors while they recorded, and I, I directed it and that kind of thing. And I, and I realized that compliance um, training was about telling great stories. And similarly with being a journalist, you know, there's so much care you give to shaping a story that, that goes beyond just, you know, literally putting words down on paper. You're really, as a journalist, you're really thinking, who's my audience? What is the meaning of this story? And what am I trying to tell people that they'll find interesting at all? So it was, I couldn't have come up with a better um, background for compliance learning. I just didn't know I was doing it at the time. Right. I think you've also, I mean, coming from a marketing standpoint, as I do, you also, you know, borrowed a bit from advertising and marketing. Yeah. And one of the quotes in your book, talk, I think, goes, effective compliance today, effective compliance training today is about communicating to persuade rather than communicating to inform. Yes. Um, that, that really resonated with me as a marketing person as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's something as humans we all we all kind of know on a common sense level. 
we all know that just giving people information isn't enough to change their behavior. Um, one of the one of the statistics I think is so interesting is if you look at um, follow through on New Year's Eve resolutions, right? That it's a new year, and you say, you know, someone says, "This is the year that I'm going to go vegan," or "This is the year that I'm going to join CrossFit," or "This is the year I'm going to floss," or "This is the year I'm going to quit smoking." <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, these are people who are driven to change their own behavior, and the year comes around, they make a resolution, and 30 days later, something like 70% of them have dropped off, and by the end of the year, if you're lucky, maybe 8% will have followed through, um, and this is something that this person wanted to do for themselves, and so that insight makes me realize it's very hard to change our own behavior, even when we're motivated to do it and we think we want to do it and we think it's in line with, you know, what fits into our life or whatever. So think about how much harder it is to change someone else's behavior. Um, that is a tough climb, especially in some of the, you know, more technical and complex areas we have to get through to people about. And so, it, you know, acknowledging that that's a big task, acknowledging that that's a big climb, Let's go find other people who already know how to do it, who, as you say, the world of advertising, the world of marketing, they've already figured some of this stuff out about how to persuade people, and it isn't through a big information dump. So let's go learn what they know and see what, what of that we can bring over into compliance. And so now you've, you've brought us up to speed. We're up to this era of digital communications. Yeah. Share some best practices with our audience and uh, you know, building a good training program uh, in this era of digital communication. How do you leverage totally. that to, to really to really bring things home? Yeah, well, so, yeah, so what are some best practices? I'll say sometimes the best practices for communicating feel a little bit counterintuitive or risk-averse to the average lawyer, and, and I'll, I'll give an example of what I mean. I think of best practices, too, and we, we mentioned it before just a moment ago, but start with your audience. You know, forget, forget the assumption that the training has to be boring. This is all stuff about human beings, right? And th there are plenty of films that have been written about uh, things that are technically compliance topics, right, whether it's money laundering or bribery or conflicts of interest. Um, but, you know, think, start with your audience and think about, who like where's my audience right now relative to this topic do they know anything about it do they care about it have i given them messages before have i bored their socks off you know before where's my audience and then think about what about this should matter to them like if i'm if i'm my average audience member what about this should matter to me? What can I tell this person that might be helpful in light of how I see my job or frightening, right, or yeah. surprising or um, or interesting? But, like, what's the hook that's going to connect with somebody? And then how can I take my message and fit it into that? Um, so start with your audience. And then number two, be shorter and catchier than you're comfortable doing or than many kind of lawyers and compliance experts are comfortable doing. We kind of have this tendency in compliance to want to tell our audience everything about something. It's almost like we're taking a test and we're trying to get it all down on paper. Um, and what I would say instead is think about, like, what are the key takeaways that someone needs to walk away knowing? And then how can I make those as catchy and as interesting and as relevant as possible and just keep repeating them so someone will actually walk away with the takeaways I want? Those are kind of my top two tips. Uh, start with your audience and be short and catchy. 
These are great, and uh, and I think they do resonate from a marketing and advertising perspective. You know, in your book, you, you talk about five key principles behind great compliance training, and maybe we can dive into a couple of those. One which I like is think like a lawyer, talk like a human. Yeah. Um, so, so you might have to um, appease some of the lawyers on our on our call today, but what, boy, what you meant by that. But go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I think... I think in, you know, if you think in a legal way or if you're a compliance expert and you have all this stuff to say, it can be tempting to write more like you're writing a contract, right? You have this massive amount of um, information. First, kind of the basic literacy on the topic. What's a bribe? Who's a government official? That kind of thing. And then, you know, you kind of, you know if you're thinking like a lawyer, all these different scenarios that could come out. But there's this temptation to just dump it all on people. And and what I mean by talk like a human is um, say it like you would say it in conversation. Say it like you would say it to a bright 12-year-old. Say it the way you would sit down and explain it to somebody over a cup of coffee. You know, listen, there are these laws and we have to follow them and here's how it goes. And also write in a way that sounds like a human writing. Um, and I think for those of us, you know, I'm kind of in the generation that, uh, you know, I was out of college before the Internet was ever kind of a thing. So I kind of have lived half my life in the digital world and half not. Um, and if you've lived your life in the digital world, you're used to the way people communicate online. It's short. It's informal. It doesn't always have, a, like, an address and a closing. You know, the way we text each other, there's no, like, dear Greg, text, sign Kirsten. We just kind of text. And same thing with Facebook posts or Instagram posts or whatever. Um but but in the era kind of before digital communication, corporate communication has been very formal, right? And right. often there's um, – often you would get kind of something that I will call like the voice of the company, right? This omniscient, um, you know, our company is committed to blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of a voice that's emanating from the company, but it's it's not said by any one person in particular. And in our digital age, talking like that – I mean, it, it seems normal for us, people who used to be on the receiving end of those kinds of memos, but like in our digital age, it's really weird to have someone talking to you and there's not a person on the other end. So number one, speak conversationally, and number two, embody that voice. Have that voice be coming from somewhere. Make it feel like a person talking to a person. Otherwise, you know, or it's kind of an outdated way of speaking. Yeah, it's great. The formal versus informal, is, it's, it resonates with me, too, with the... Yeah. With daughters who are uh, college and post-college age, so yeah. um, it, it seems like we have some of a bit of a branding issue too, a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and being able to sell compliance to the rest of the organization in quotes there and selling compliance, and and so how do we do that? How do we how do you take um, what's seen as a very formal and impersonal approach and and sell that to the organization as this is something we've got to invest in and do better? And do better, yeah. Well, what's funny about it is, you know, in a in a in a really funny way, being mandatory has hurt compliance persuasiveness. Because, like, if if from the beginning we had to persuade employees about why they had to comply, and we had no ability to have mandatory course completions or anything like that, 
we would have picked up some of these tools a lot easier um, and a lot faster because it's it's all about is human communication working and in a, in a in a funny way having the ability to compel um, participation I think hurt us a little bit and so when it comes to like how do you sell because there's kind of two constituencies right how do you sell compliance to your end user your end audience the people who you want to have follow the rules and then how do you sell kind of this more short catchy, um, persuasive approach to your stakeholders, right, the compliance professionals who ultimately have to sign off on this stuff. Um, and there's no one magic formula. I think just asking the question uh, opens up a lot of really interesting lines of thought. Um, but when it comes to selling compliance to your end audience, I say pretend it's not mandatory and pretend that you that like you're fighting for bandwidth and you're fighting for attention share and think about what could I possibly tell these people about this topic that they would find interesting because that's a good way in. And for and for your compliance professionals, you know, it's funny lawyers and compliance professionals are really trained in um in kind of the mindset of risk, risk and risk mitigation. But I think one big risk they're overlooking is it feels it feels safe to include tons of content and to have these really dense courses. But what about the risk that no one will pay attention, right? What about the risk that they'll be looking at cat videos on YouTube while, while they're pretending to click their next button or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it really, I think, you know, for the internal stakeholders, you need to convince Talking to them in the language of risk and the risk that people will tune you out and not pay attention at a time when, you know, regulators are signaling just having a program in place isn't enough. It needs to work, right? And so then it's having the conversation of, well, what actually works, what gets through? Um, those, those are my thoughts anyway. Yeah, and you brought up a good point on regulatory scrutiny. Let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Because um, there, there are heightened regulatory uh, pressures. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this approach can help with that. Uh, yeah. Meeting regulatory crimes of, you know, combating sort of some of that regulatory scrutiny. Right. You know, it's so funny. I was just the other day, I was looking, we just got back from the SBCE conference uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. two weeks ago, and I was looking at some photos from past SBCE conferences, and there's a picture of me speaking at the SBCE conference in 2013, and there's this slide clearly visible in the background, and there's like a down arrow, and it says like, defensibility down, you know, one-size-fits-all courses, uh, proof of activity, you know, uh, one global message for everybody. And then the up arrow is about effectiveness, and it's like, can you prove it works? You know, tailored, relevant content, shorter, more frequent communications. And I and I say that, and I I kind of mentioned 2013 to say this is a really big shift in our industry that's been it's been coming for a while. It's been evident for a while. And the 2017 and 2019 uh, Department of Justice guidance really kind of articulated it and crystallized it and helped with the push. Um, but, you know, yeah, our industry is really grappling with a move from I can prove I had my program in place to I can prove my program's working. Um, and the reason it's so hard is those are two different mindsets, right? Something that's set up to track proof of activity, proof of existence is different than something that's really measuring what works. Um, so to answer your question of how this can help, you know, if our, if our industry is going to be judged not by 
the number of course completions or that we can prove somebody tested to 100%, but, but by the actual effectiveness on the users, then of course it makes sense to start looking at the users and saying, were they persuaded? Did this get through, right? Is this, is this material that somebody would on their own find interesting and not just have forced on them kind of by the company who issues them their paycheck? Yeah, and that's great. I mean, and here's the rubber race. The road really is on, you know, how do you measure that, right? You know, what sort of metrics are meaningful or not meaningful? And, you know, when, when do you, when do you rely on e-learning versus in-person training, like, and, and the different metrics around those? I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on measurement. Yeah, totally. Well, it's so interesting because measurement is really like the first shoe dropped, right? The first shoe was, hey, this stuff actually has to be effective. And the measurement shoe is dropping right now, which is like, oh, but how do you prove it? Um, and I really think as an industry, we're figuring this out, um, really figuring out how you prove it. Now, what I'll say is I think we're going to come up with you know, version 1.0 of the solution, then it'll be two, three, four. We'll get more and more sophisticated at this. Um, we're still in, you know, we're kind of in measurement the way we were in compliance programs circa 2000 to 2003. We're just getting it set up. Um, but the companies that are doing a good job with measurement are the ones who just sit back and think, well, what can I what can I measure and who can I ask? Um, and you know, it's, it can be a combination of surveys, focus groups, just going down the hall and talking to people. Um, it doesn't have to be this kind of big architecture, infrastructure, big data thing. Um, it can just be, let, let's think about what we're trying to measure. So, you know, for instance, around, let's say, something critical like anti-bribery or information protection, you might want to say, I really, I really think it's critical for my audience to have basic literacy in this topic. And I define basic literacy, let's say, around bribery. I define basic literacy as... They, they know what a bribe is, not just an overt one, but some of the more subtle ones. They know how to recognize a government official. They know our rules about bribery. They know our rules about working with third parties and due diligence, and they know where to get help if they need it. And then, you know, once you kind of define what am I trying to test, you say, all right, well, maybe I'll send out a test about that. Maybe I'll do a cultural survey. Maybe I will track uh, questions to our compliance office around these topics. You know, you once you kind of kind of clarify and articulate what am I trying to measure, it's it's pretty easy to come up with some initial or common sense ways to measure it. And then measurement is especially effective. Same is true of me, uh, same is true of a lot of medical tests. One medical test in isolation tells you one thing. Many tests of the same thing over time shows you trends, shows you progressions, gives you something to measure. And so you know, it isn't just about measuring something once, like I can prove everybody knows this, but it's about measuring it and then measuring it again and measuring it again and measuring it again and trying to see uh, what trends you can see um, and, and if there are things you did that move the needle. And frankly, if there are things you didn't, you did that didn't move the needle, um, and I'll just say one more thing. I know this is already a long answer, but I'll say that the flip side or the thing that comes along with measurement is Sometimes we're going to measure and things won't have made an impact. And all that measurement can be good information for making our compliance programs better, but we have to be open to data that says we didn't hit the mark or we still have work to do or there's a gap. And that can be very scary for compliance professionals. And yet that's exactly what measurement is all about. Yeah, and that's a finding in and of itself. 
I mean, I think some of the measurements probably differ whether you're, you know, looking at effectiveness of e-learning versus in-person. But it also can differ, you know, it also can differ based on the audiences. I mean, each, you know, not every audience in the company is the same. It's just there's there's salespeople and then there's your compliance people and then there's your back office people. And and so some of the messaging actually might be different and some of the measurement might be different um, on those audiences. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And this is where both the effectiveness and the measurement thing gets complicated in that it is, it's different for different audiences and it's different for different companies. So it's not just a solution you can buy off the shelf. It really requires, similar to when companies do a risk assessment, right? They have to do a very personalized, tailored look at their own company's risks. And uh, the same is becoming true of, of all this stuff. And yeah, and you're right about in-person training, being different than e-learning and maybe being aimed at a different audience and different audiences having different goals. It's true. It gets a lot more complex, doesn't it? Sure does. It sure does. Yeah. Uh, great. Boy, I wish that um, uh, the, the company I had been working with had, had, your advice, had taken your advice or had that incorporated already when I went through the training. But yeah, right? If a, if a company listening to, uh, to, our, today, to, our, to our show here today once you get started, what's what's some easy ways or some things they can do just to get started? Yeah, it's such a great it's such a great question. And you know, part of this is this whole thing's a process. You don't have to transform your training overnight, but you can move it in steps towards where you want to go. Um, and so, I would say if someone is out there and they're about to create a piece of training and they say, "Hey, I want to I want to see what are some tips in this book I could put towards creating this training." What I would say, and I I know I probably sound like a broken record, but I would say start with your audience, right? So think about your audience and tailor it to them. Think about writing in short, snappy, uh, styled sentences. Um, The way that we write for a book or an essay or a contract is different than the way we write for the web. There's a really great website called Copyblogger, which is all about how do you write copy for the web. Um, and if if all you did was change, like literally write the same thing, but then break it up with subheadings and uh, bulleted lists and things like that, you'd go a long way. And then number three, try to be a person writing to a person. Instead of writing sentences like, as you know, our company is committed to integrity, say, you know, look, we're a company that really wants to do the right thing um, because putting things in more conversational language will make it feel more direct, will make it feel more kind of interesting, and will get people's attention better than kind of corporate boilerplate. That's great. Um, we've been talking to Kirsten Liston. The company is Rethink Compliance. Um, her book is Creating Great Compliance Training in the Digital World. Kirsten, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Greg. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily Riskbook email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.